Hello, dear listeners. First, I have a couple of housekeeping type things to get through before we get into the good stuff. Bear with me. I hope you'll enjoy this episode of my brand new premium miniseries on the global far right. This will usually be available on my Patreon at the new premium tier or above, which I encourage you to subscribe at. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes, no Ian mangoes, and support a rare non-bro podcast today. Jokes aside, though, many of you will have heard that my family went through quite an unbelievable tragedy last year. I don't want to go over the details again because it's still difficult for me to speak about, but if you want to know more, you can check out my episode titled Update from 2022. So anyway, that incident changed a lot of things for me as a freelance graphic designer because I simply didn't have the time or ability with everything else that was going on to hustle and and chase the work as you have to do when you freelance. Plus, you know, having a toddler took a toll on that work too. So a lot of income was lost. Anyway, not to bore you with the details of that, but basically I'm at a crossroads now where I either have to start earning more doing this or do something else full time. I can't afford to keep this podcast going at the pace it is. It's just not worth the effort at the level of income it generates. I already put an update out for my patrons a couple of weeks ago as a heads up. So where I'm at right now... um, I'm giving myself a couple of months to really ramp up production, launch this new mini-series, offer new exclusive Patreon content, add a new Patreon tier, and shift a lot more of my upcoming work to Patreon-exclusive stuff, basically. If this show has been of any value to you over the years and you would like to support it to keep it going, like actually help it survive, really there has been no other time as important as now to become a patron because that will help me gauge over the next several weeks if I need to shut things down completely or switch to putting it extremely on the back burner while I focus on finding other full-time work or if I can actually manage to keep going by accelerating production and shifting gears a little bit. So in the next two months, I'll be at least doubling output and hoping that translates to doubling patrons, which can possibly buy me another month to try and double it again. But basically, if I don't triple what I earn through the podcast, at the very least, I need to shut it down after a wonderful run of more than half a decade. Actually, eight years in February, so almost a decade even. Either way, though, I thank you all so much for your listenership and your support over the years. It's truly been a labor of love. I have enjoyed doing it so much, and I hope to continue, but we'll see where the next couple of months takes me. And speaking of support, other ways you can support the show and help it get a larger audience is to leave some good reviews. Give it five stars over at iTunes and Spotify. That is really so, so important. I haven't focused much on that aspect before, but I'm definitely going to be doing some related art giveaways on my Patreon soon. Post a review, enter a draw to win a free portrait or artwork, something along those lines. So keep an eye out for that. And, you know, share it with friends and on social media. Leave comments 
And other than that, if you'd like to commission some art, especially with Christmas around the corner, I am opening up my commissions after like a year of not drawing much at all because I just couldn't. Pet portraits, human portraits, house portraits. So yeah, get in touch before the Christmas rush, ideally. If you have other graphic design needs or audio editing work, do let me know because gigs like that are also a big help. But I digress. Back to the show. In summary, I am on a real actual clock for the first time. I would love to not shut things down. So if you can support via Patreon, that would be super duper helpful. Um, If you're already a patron and you can bump yourself up a Patreon tier, that would be much, much appreciated. You will definitely get a lot more bang for your buck now that I'm ramping things up. But I know it's tough times for everyone lately, eh? Just the toll that Elon alone has taken on so many content creators is hard to express. But anywho, now that we're through all that, let's get this new miniseries rolling, shall we? With increased, often instant connectivity through smartphones, social media, and endless greedy platforms only interested in clicks for profit, right at people's fingertips 24-7. The reach of far-right influencers and their talking points has grown at an alarming pace just over the last several years. Throw a global pandemic and chaotic response to it into the mix, More isolation, more time spent online, and you begin to see a rise in conspiracy theories, various forms of online radicalization that definitely don't stay online. You see a growing mistrust of institutions, with not just right-wing and far-right talking heads exacerbating that mistrust, but centrist pundits too, often adding to the cacophony of hate and fear-mongering we are inundated by making the mainstream right and far right indistinguishable from one another. With so many forces constantly chipping away at human rights and pushing the Overton window further and further right, things look pretty damn bleak. Leaving us searching for answers during this unprecedented emboldening and coordination and echoing of similar talking points and tactics globally, I think it's important to at least try and understand the bigger picture of it all, to see the overlaps and alliances and the connections and the similarities and how the far right operates everywhere, really, before we can even begin to think about how we undo and combat these things. Which is why I'm doing this mini-series, so hopefully we can learn more through this together. In this first episode, we'll be taking a thorough look at what's been happening in India. This recording is from over a week ago, so the situation between India and Canada has escalated even more since then. With the Indian disinformation machine really shamelessly spreading ludicrous Alex Jonesian unsubstantiated nonsense, like there being supposedly so much cocaine on Justin Trudeau's G20 plane that he couldn't make it to events because he was so, quote, high on drugs, according to an Indian ex-diplomat, who may have meant it as some weird tongue-in-cheek jab, 
but it doesn't really matter because a lot of right-wingers, both in India and in the West, have happily jumped on and continue to spread it like wildfire. Another Indian politician apparently threatened to nuke Canada on live TV, and just today I saw a ridiculous headline about Nijara, the Canadian Sikh separatist that Indian agents allegedly assassinated right in Canada, being gay and liking Trudeau. Just extremely non-believable bullshit that is escalating things for really weird reasons. But before we really get into it, I just wanted to give you a quick little summary of keywords that we use throughout the conversation so things don't get confusing. Let's see. Hindutva. This is an ideology of Hindu nationalism and supremacy. RSS is the far-right volunteer paramilitary organization that helps to systematically spread this ideology. BJP is the right-wing political party currently in power and is basically the official political party of the RSS. Dalit are people formerly known in the traditional Indian caste system as untouchable. All right, there you have it. Now let's hear what's happening in India. Like, I did not have Canada versus India diplomatic battles on my bingo card. Right? It's wild. It is so wild. It is such a weird fight to pick. (laughs) The conditions in the past few years have been a perfect storm for extremism, terrorist attack, hate, community and conspiracy theories to flourish around the world join me as I try to learn more one country at a time in another polite conversations mini series this time exploring the global far right Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of my brand new mini series on the global far right. Today, I'll be speaking about the far right in India with Associate Professor of Marketing Gaurav Subnas, who teaches at Stevens Institute of Technology and is currently writing a book about the political marketing of Hindutva. Hello, Gaurav. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Aina. Nice to be back on one of your podcasts. Yeah. Last time we spoke, we joked at the end that the next time we chat, it's going to be a very positive and uplifting conversation about India. Yeah. We are somehow not there at all. (laughs) Although in some ways we might be. I think we might get to that. That. I think a lot of these recent bizarre tantrums are a sign of almost like a death rattle, although mm. that be a little aggressive, that uh, I feel like the BJP feels like they are finally about to maybe be voted out of office next year. So they are throwing everything at the wall. Gosh, I hope you're right. But I don't know. From an outsider's perspective, it certainly doesn't seem that way to me. But um, before we go further, though, let's start at the very beginning. So maybe you can just explain a little bit about your background, how you are a professor that gets targeted online uh, by these far-right creeps, and uh, why you're targeted so much, and... 
Um, maybe we can talk about the terminology because I know for people that aren't too familiar, like RSS, Hindutva, BJP, all of those terms can get confusing. So yeah, let's begin there. Yep. Awesome. So yeah, so the summary of my background would be that I grew up in uh, Pune, a reasonably big city in India and in a fairly liberal westernized world and the India I was growing up in always had this presence of a Hindu right-wing party. However, it was just one of these parties. It was one of these almost like this tripod of political alliances in the 90s and early 2000s, where there was the Congress party that was the traditional liberal party. There were the third front, which were more leftist, and there was the Hindu right-wing. So I started my blogging around 20 years ago in 2002, 2003, and that is that was almost immediately after the riots in Gujarat happened mm-hmm. in 2002. And this was the early days of blogging, right? So I didn't even think too much about anonymity or anything. So from beginning, my blog was always in my full name. And I was okay with building up kind of pseudo-celebrity, minor celebrity online on blogs based on that. But as a result, like anytime I posted any thoughts I had, after 2002, I was always opposed to the Hindu right wings, very specifically the Narendra Modi version of Hindu right wing. So just like in the US, within Republican Party, there was the Trump version of republicanism and there was the Romney version and the George Bush version and the Trump version was the most extreme. Yeah. Similarly, until about 10 years ago, within the BJP, which is the Hindu right wing, there were these differing versions where the previous BJP prime minister, Vajpayee, was more of like this cute, cuddly statesman guy on the world stage. Like he wasn't, he wasn't putting himself in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. But at that point, Narendra Modi started changing the definition of right-wing Hindutva within India, going from something that was more ascetic, more simplistic, you know, people who just don't do anything, to something more muscular. Muscular in terms of economic might and also in terms of just flexing foreign policy dreams where you think that just being really loud on the foreign policy stage makes you super influential and like what China or Russia tried to do. When I was blogging, I was continuously for about 20 years just saying that I don't like this guy, I don't like this guy, I don't think he will be the prime minister, but of course I was proven wrong. In 2014, he Mm -hmm. managed to build up enough support and convince enough people that he was very thumpingly elected in a way that almost no politician had been elected in a generation. And he was again right. re-elected in 2019. Right. He won in a, a landslide, right? And, yeah, he won in a landslide. As opposed to Trump, who wasn't able to then convert it into a re-election, mm-hmm. Modi seemed to go the Erdogan way. And like I, that's why I, see, I always think of Modi as Erdogan and like, 10 years removed, where he's doing a lot of the same things that Erdogan does, that he realizes that this is a, this is not a fundamentally conservative country, but it is conservative enough that it can be manipulated to his purposes, as long as he can keep winning elections. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sorry, that might be a very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so let's, let's try to define some terms. 
what is uh, the BJP? What is RSS? What is Hindutva? Oh, yes. Actually, that is a great point. Let's define those terms. So, Hindutva is a relatively recent phenomenon in that that word didn't exist until about 100 years ago. The general concept of Hindutva, which is very new, came from copying European fascism, where they said that your ethnicity, your genetics are the basis of your identity and nationhood, etc. Mm-hmm. So the Hindutva people came up with this idea that, yes, just like the Europeans are superior and whatever else, we are also superior in our own way. And they started using that model to say that just like Germany is for Germans first and, you know, there was the Britain first movement mm-hmm. and which is sort of uh, coming back now. There was America first in America. The same movement was almost copied in India as Hindutva, where they're like, okay, India belongs to Hindus because that is the majority, that is the history. And it just started with that general idea. That led to a couple of different organizations. One of them was this organization called the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, RSS. Its literal translation is the National Volunteer Force. So Yikes. They were always like, oh, we are just volunteers. We are not like a political party, which even today they don't maintain member roles. Like they are a very diffused kind of Mm. strange organization. Uh, They started off and even in my childhood, like I, I participated in a lot of events that were conducted by them. So they would have like these... Um, essay competitions or art competitions. Okay. And they would be organized in ways that they were not explicitly pro-Hindu, but there was enough of an undercurrent there, like, you know, talk about Bharat Mata, which is like this personification of India, which is very Hindu in its appearance. Like, so like Mother India, yeah. Yeah, Mother India, exactly. So that is the RSS, which has been also around for a hundred years. It was suspected and charged in the Gandhi assassination in 1948, banned for a few years, but then uh, allowed to function again. Now, the RSS never flew the Indian flag on its headquarters until the 21st century. So they existed from the 1920s till the year about 2001 or 2002 where they refused to fly the Indian tricolor, the saffron, white, and green, because mm-hmm. they believe that India should be a Hindu Rashtra. As in, now, they are never very clear about what this means. Right? Sometimes they will make it seem like, oh, just like Pakistan was Islamic, but everybody is treated equal theoretically, but Muslims are first. That is Theoretically, what yes. Uh, yeah. Sometimes they'll say, we want it to be like the U.S., where, okay, Theoretically, legally, Christianity doesn't have any, you know, any official sanction, but America is still known as a place where Christians hold the most power. And then sometimes they want to be like Turkey, like they they have no clarity because it it has never been an original historic movement, almost always plagiarism. But also that kind of vagueness always helps fascism, right? So you can shift and uh, move according to whatever is happening. Yeah. And like, as, as we've seen with this recent uh, Canada clash. Now, the BJP is the yeah. third or the fourth iteration of that in which in a democratic country that India has been since 1947 or 1950, rather, I guess, technically, you 
have to be a registered political party. You have to like do some paperwork, etc. So if RSS wanted to fight elections, they could not do it in their current form. They would either have to like change their entire format or they could just create this offshoot. So they created this offshoot called what was initially the Jansung and then later became the BJP, which was officially the political wing of the organization. Right. So it had an official existence, which it still does. But at the same time, they maintain this kind of dual identity, almost a bipolar identity in which anybody who is a senior leader in the BJP is also a member of the RSS, which doesn't have any roles in its, any member roles or any stated philosophy. Its philosophy just keeps changing according to how the wind blows Mm. and fascistic convenience. So the BJP struggled for several decades, but its basic idea was that if we can capture about 35 to 40 percent of that majoritarian and majoritarian adjacent vote, then we can capture power. And then once we capture power, then we can change the constitution and the law of the land and everything else because there aren't as many checks and balances in the young Indian constitution. Right? So somebody who captures a huge majority can pretty much run the country any way they want, change the constitution any way they want. And that is the stage of history we are at now. So it's where we are at now is like my larger point is Narendra Modi is just incidental. If Narendra Modi weren't born, there would have been somebody else. Mm. This is the inevitable conclusion of this majoritarian Hindu movement that has been built up in India for close to a century through grassroots marketing that started well before the internet era. Like It's something that I look back and I realize, oh, I was indoctrinated in this way in my childhood and I had to actively fight it. Right. So correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but the RSS is like this a volunteer organization and it also has like a kind of Boy Scouts-ish image as well. Yes, exactly. And like the, the irony is that they were originally modeled not after the Boy Scouts, but almost after the Hitler Youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, so you the can see it in their Boy Scouts. Yeah, but the thing is, the Hitler Youth was Hitler Youth because they held power. The the RSS did not hold power until 2014. So, by definition, they resemble Boy Scouts, but the Boy Scouts doesn't have a like. Of course, the Boy Scouts are not exactly super liberal themselves, as we know, mm. but. The RSS were able to pass off as a Boy Scouts-like movement. That's why like, I participated in a lot of their stuff as a kid. But if I had a child today, I would not let that child participate. Right. Or my parents would not let me participate if they knew then what they know about the RSS now. So, yeah, they did get away by being Boy Scouts-ish for years, and they still do. They still pretend to be that. Right, and you see, like, even abroad, there's a lot of these, like, cultural camps and yoga classes or whatever, through which, you know, it seems like a harmless cultural activity thing for your kids to be enrolled in, but they are slowly, you know, indoctrinating them with, like, ideas like Hindu supremacy. Yep big time and like I don't know if this might be too much of a tangent but Vivek Ramaswamy one of the things he wrote in his book before he started running for president was that capitalism helps solve Hindu casteism because his high caste 
family allows pizza delivery guys to deliver pizza and tips them right like <laughs> how does somebody who grew up in ohio even get this view of the world unless it's actively indoctrinated into him right so he thinks that allowing the pizza delivery guys to come and deliver the pizza which they ordered and tipping them is somehow uh, combating casteism yeah and this is like literally i'm not, I, I i might be just paraphrasing word wise but this is what he writes in his own book the anti woke <laughs> the anti woke <laughs> ink book where he's like he thinks the market has a solution to almost everything and he's like the example he gives is that market is helping solve casteism by having previously untouchable folks deliver pizza to my brahmin family and my family tips them and this is solving casteism right <laughs> this, this guy grew up in the us how does he even get this world view unless it is actively indoctrinated into him right yeah it's such a far fetched and out of touch privileged thing yeah. to think that and he, this is a guy who went to both harvard and yale right like i don't think any resume in the world has higher educational qualifications and going to both harvard and yale so this is a guy who went to harvard and yale and he's saying this stuff <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i did i did want to ask you about the uh, overlaps that we see between trumpism and uh, modiism and general overlaps with the western far right you know like this anti woke stuff like We'll get to the Trudeau um, stuff in a minute, but when you look up the tweets or you just look up uh, Trudeau on Twitter right now, you'll see a lot of like tweets from Hindu nationalists like criticizing him, but also using hashtags like woke ideology or like you know just ridiculous things that do not fit into this diplomatic weird spat that India and Canada. are having right now it's got nothing to do with wokeness you know yeah it is just this it is just this broader strategy of continuous anger and grievance that any fascism works on so that's how it was in the trump presidency like there was some new drama every couple of days right so that's what has been happening in india in the modi years where they have created so part of it is very much a russian style just sock puppets mm. right but i'm not going to say that it is entirely sock puppets like i'm not going to say that there is no organic presence of this ideology so the organic presence is managed through telegrams and whatsapp groups and things like that so many times somebody is just copy pasting stuff on twitter not because they are a fake account or sock puppet but because they are part of a quote unquote patriotic telegram or whatsapp group and they are told go to this tweet this anti national person is saying this post this response right like right. so it's a, it's even more insidious than let's say what russia did in the us elections in 2016 this is much more like it does have a genuine grassroots component in this anger the thing is that a lot of these are real people who genuinely believe that canada has suddenly become dangerous or uh, like all these random things where on the one hand they say that this didn't happen on the other hand they say like yes we did it why shouldn't we do it so like it it just becomes this incoherent cable news debate that just spills over into 
everywhere else where you're just trying to win an argument it doesn't make it doesn't it doesn't have to make sense right right which is a typical right wing and far right yep. feature right yeah um so there's a lot of overlaps you know just in the movements between trumpism and modiism but i also see like rhetoric that reminds me a lot of like white supremacist rhetoric like talking about dharmic duties to reproduce more so that you know uh muslims are overtaken or muslim the fears about muslims uh reproducing and uh i don't know taking over um fear-mongering about muslim men raping women which is like something that happens here in the west right here and uh it's just shocking to me i was watching this documentary um in preparation for our conversation you know that bbc one the modi question that was uh posted on twitter i think and then elon's lovely yeah. hell site complied with censoring it and uh now we see that he has like a bunch of business interests in India and uh yeah um you know free speech Elon silencing uh stuff at the behest of the state yeah and that that is one of those things that a lot of indian uh, liberals or centrists try to minimize which is how unprecedented the use of the indian state has been in the last nine years but especially after modi won re-election so it, it started before so what ends up happening and i think this happens a lot with trump versus george bush versus reagan as well that you say that trump is bad in a particular way and somebody will say oh well this was always happening right, right? so that is what happens a lot with modi in which like you're like oh the so even though there might be people who are like in the US who are saying that, oh, Muslim men are going to be targeting and raping our women, you don't actually have cases of mobs going into homes in the US or Canada saying, hey, this is a Muslim man marrying a non-Muslim woman, let us investigate him, let us take him to the cops. Like if somebody tried to do that, they would be arrested, right? But in India, the opposite has been happening in the last few years, which is that random strangers will just go up to an interfaith couple and they will attack them and the cops will not go after the mob the cops will do something to the couple yeah so it has been officially it's like you know i i keep giving these parallels to 1930s germany before the holocaust started full on but there is like this parallel to nuremberg laws where in the nuremberg laws were doing exactly the same thing where they were slowly empowering people by just saying that oh all these extremely wealthy and cruel and huge Jewish men are seducing our Aryan women. Right? Which, right. as history knows, was just not happening. Because first of all, just 1% yeah. of the country was Jewish. And even among them, there weren't that many couples. It's a similar thing in India. Like in India, 90% of Indians marry within the same caste. Like forget the same religion. Yeah. 97% or so percent of Indians marry within the same religion. And the percentage of Hindu-Muslim couples is at something like less than 1% or so. Right? But And yet they have created this complete myth that has been common throughout history that these suspicious men are going to come after our women because it just reaches everybody's evolutionary instincts. Yeah. 
And this is what the term love jihad has been created for? Yep, exactly. Like completely concocted. <laughs> so it just refers to, I don't know, Muslim men doing a kind of conquering by getting Hindu women to fall in love with them? Yeah, so the one thing that we are taught and... Honest, I'll, I'll be honest, when I was a teenager and maybe a young college student, I would have also believed this, was that we were told that if Muslim men convert a Hindu woman and she becomes a Muslim and they marry, then the Muslim man gets a lot of, you know, like duas and everything and he'll go to heaven and all that. I later realized that just is not even technically true, right? Like that, that, that there isn't as much of a... There isn't as much of an incentive on proselytization in Islam as there is in Christianity. Right. But somehow Hindus believe there is. That somehow Hindus believe that there is this huge roving gang of Muslim men and just Muslims in general who want to go around converting our very good-looking Madhuri Dikshit type Brahmin <laughs> women and just convert them into Islam to what and nobody exactly knows. It is just the same thing with Emmett Till in the US. It's the same thing that they did with the yeah. Nazis. Like It is that same thing that whoever we hate their men are coming after our women there doesn't have to be any more logic than that yeah it's like the oldest fashy trope there is but you know these things they succeed because maybe sometimes they're kind of built around a grain a tiniest grain of truth and like you know it does happen in pakistan that there are forced conversions, right? The far right there is fucking horrific as well and targets Hindus, but it's certainly not as organized or um, polished as, or uh, large in numbers as the Indian far right, which seems to be building alliances with far right politicians around the world as well, which is horrifying, you know? Like, at least we can all agree that jihadists are trash, right? I think yep. everybody, nobody is fooled by them. Nobody thinks they're slick, except for others who believe that stuff. But yeah, so this love jihad stuff is horrifying. Uh, and then the, the other thing that's so similar to Nazi tactics is like targeting Muslim businesses, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Muslim businesses and even now like this this is almost breaking news from yesterday also Dalit businesses so Dalit yeah. are uh, former uh, untouchable so there was this unprecedented decision where you know in India you have this ration card it's kind of like uh, it gives you a certain amount of subsidized grain or supplies a month and in one particular village that shop was owned by a man who's Dalit and a lot of the villagers said we don't want to buy stuff from a Dalit. Like, like just straight up in the year 2023, they were yeah. just saying, we don't want to buy something from a guy based on what he was born in. While they simultaneously claim that casteism is over. Exactly, right? And that's why the hypocrisy is very baked into Hindutva or any fascism. Now, in the past, the Indian government would not have encouraged this because the Indian government the constitution was written by people who wanted to eliminate casteism. They probably did not want it strongly enough. You know, it's kind of like a parallel to the U.S. Constitution that 
the, it was written by people who were probably not fans of slavery. They just didn't try hard enough to get rid of slavery. It's the same thing with casteism in India that it was written obviously by Dr. Ambedkar, but he had to get agreement from everyone else. But the Indian state was still saying that, no, you cannot be casteist. Like that is one thing you cannot be. But what happened literally yesterday was that the top bureaucrat who is completely under the control of the government and under the control of Modi, gave this exception to the villagers saying that, okay, if you don't like this vendor, you can go to a neighboring village and get stuff from there under the name of freedom, you know, just like freedom of religion or freedom, right, whatever right. is used to push other kind of bigotry. So this is for the first time I've seen in my life, and this just happened yesterday, the Indian state officially sanctioning anti-caste prejudice as government policy, right? Like we always have these fringe elements in any society who will do a lot of extreme shit. Like we have a one and a half billion people. So even 0.01% of us is a lot of people. But the state officially sanctioning every such expression of regressive uh, identities and bigotry is unprecedented. And I don't think the world is fully realizing the scope of it. Canada is finally, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was looking for that documentary to watch, it was very hard to find. And I mean, I found it, but like, it just put everything into perspective. Like, obviously, I've talked to you before, and I, I understand that the Hindu far right and Hindu nationalism is, you know, getting scarier and scarier. But to watch that two-part documentary, I was really blown away. Um, if anyone listening is looking for it, it's the BBC one called India, the Modi question. And just to see everything laid out together in like one thing you can consume, it was just horrifying from the state participation almost in the Gujarat riots of 2002. You know, I, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know how blatantly politicians and cops were told to do nothing and look the other way when people were being literally butchered and chopped up in the streets and uh, they did nothing. Yeah. And then, you know, like the judge, jury, and executioner is all them also. So when all these investigations happen into their complicity, into Modi's complicity, apparently he received phone calls personally, which he denies, of course, but from a Muslim former MP who was like being attacked in his home. Yep, Hassan Jafri. Yep. People did nothing. And, you know, he was killed in the streets and just, just like horrifying shit. And then they say in the investigations, oh, the Supreme Court found no evidence. And the cops say, oh, there's no evidence, you know, but it's all because they're, they're all working together. And then you see the cops, they're filming people that they're beating themselves and then forcing them to like sing the national anthem. The, like, it, it's... I have no words, you know? Like, that is just blatant fascism in the streets. Like, imagine seeing someone of a different religion and just, like, beating them. And as they are laying in the street, you're filming, because you're proud of this for some reason as a cop, 
and then you're asking them to sing the Indian national anthem, which for some reason you think they wouldn't know because they're not really Indian in your eyes. And it is something that has been actively normalized, like in the sense that there was this article that came out a few years ago, just soon after Trump lost the election to Biden and before the Jan 6th by Adam Gopnik, in which he said that we keep asking how democracy devolves into fascism and we should be asking the opposite question, that what makes democracy happen in the first place? Because our natural state is fascism, just following one leader and suspecting anybody who doesn't look like us, right? So we have to like actively keep needing that dough of democracy, not preserve it like a pickle. Mm. And I see that happening in India because when I was growing up 20 years ago, the mainstream opinion did not like Modi at all. Like he was considered, when all this was happening in 2002, he got away with this almost always by the skin of his teeth, like institutionally for various reasons that sometimes he was just lucky where... Honestly, when in 2004, when the Manmohan Singh government came in, in, they could have just dismissed his government and gone after him big time. But maybe they feared there would be a political fallout. So they didn't go after him. So it's like a very, it's like the story of where at every stage he was making it very clear what he wants to do, which is to normalize what was not normal in India. Because even in our worst times, even in during the like, during the Gujarat pogrom in 2002 or what happened in Mumbai in 93. Throughout that, there was this collective sense that this is not a good thing to happen, right? Like, we should not be killing each other on the basis of religion. The history of India, you know, should teach that this is not a good thing to let happen, right? It's gone through partition. It's gone through so much violence before when people start doing this. Yeah. And like our... Like when I was growing up, the government propaganda used to be, we are all in this together, like Sarva Dharma Samabhav, like it was unity in diversity. That literally used to be one of the mottos we were taught in school. I cannot imagine kids in India today learning that motto, unity in diversity. Right? Like we all grew up in India in the 80s and 90s learning unity in diversity. Today they are like, India is a Hindu Rashtra. Like you need to make sure... and. They they uh, they want to pretend like they want to be a developed Western liberal democracy, but their three main whataboutry targets that they keep mentioning are China, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. Right. Yeah. I mean, no one is buying that Saudi Arabia is a liberal democracy in the first (laughs) place, so... Yeah, but like they bring it in in like whataboutry. So if somebody's like, oh, this thing happened, well, in Saudi Arabia, they won't even let women drive. So why are they criticizing India? Right? It's that classic deflection. Yeah. I mean, they do that here as well. Like, and they do that in even Pakistan, which is not the greatest on human rights, as everybody knows. But even they will be like, well, at least it's better than Saudi Arabia. So. That what about a tactic is used by everyone, including <laughs> Islamists. So and uh, and funnily enough, if we if you go in the opposite direction, the way you and I are, where we are like you know we are an Indian and Pakistani is discussing the flaws of our country, the right wingers get really upset by that as well. <laughs> mm. Like I've gotten a lot of trolling for a couple of years for a thread I wrote before Pakistan really recently descended into chaos, and I was like. You know, a few years ago, in 
इंडिया सीम्स स्टेबल पाकिस्तान सीम के आर्टेक करेंटली इंडिया सीम्स के आर्टेक पाकिस्तान सीम्स स्टेबल सो इट वाज जस्ट अ जनरल कॉन्वर्सेशन आई पोस्टेड डेट आई हैड विद द पाकिस्तानी फ्रेंड these right winger twitter folks still keep bringing that up as some kind of a gloat mechanism and i'm like why do i care like how does it really affect me like my opinion if pakistan is going through a trouble time like it just means that both countries are down the shitter now like it doesn't make india any better right that pakistan is going through the chaos but in indian news channels there is a continuous almost a regular sub uh, segment called chali ab baat karte hain pakistan ki right like there is always do like can you translate no, that for the audience yeah there's no segue even like there's no pretense of a segue where they'll be telling a news and they'll be like let us tell you something from pakistan this horrible thing happened in pakistan <laughs> at least it didn't that well they're never going to run out of content for that segment <laughs> exactly <laughs> like the race to the bottom yeah among both india and pakistan seriously seriously i mean uh oh, i don't know so so what you're saying is that the overton window has very much shifted within your lifetime right extremely yeah and within the last i'll say even 9 10 years but yeah it was done very methodically like when i look back at it yeah so i mean i was just listening to some of the things that are captured on camera from the extremists and they like they may say like oh at least we're better than isis or whatever but they don't sound that much better because they are out in the streets with axes saying these axes are to chop off the heads of non-believers they are like trying to check men to see if they're circumcised or not and just like fucking horrifying shit like how is that better than islamist terrorists yeah and it is not at all better and if you dig deep and as i've done with many of my people i grew up with relatives etc who subscribe to this philosophy if you dig deep you will see that there is no there is no moral compass or a moral thing there other than just pure old fashioned tribalism in which they all just believe that all us hindus are the ones under threat muslims are the biggest threats and then in any order we preferred china is the next threat america is another threat woke people are another threat you know and this is uh, this is something that has been built up over the years slowly but then social media just took it to a whole other level and my dad explained it in a really good way in which he said that before social media if you knew this one annoying guy who keeps pushing extremist ideology you just avoided him you walked away most yeah. people in the age of social media you cannot do that because the more text that person posts on a group chat or on twitter or anything else the more attention that person gets as opposed to the old world and i was like wow yeah i can see why that suddenly led to a revival of just global fascism that all these annoying tedious idiots that we could have just walked away from or avoided because of our smartphones we cannot avoid anymore yeah they're just in your face all the time and as they gain power they're there's more and more of them right on social media and like just see what's happened to twitter it's owned by like the biggest 
far-right <laughs> troll in the world who of has course. empowered other far-right trolls to be seen more than non-far-right trolls in the algorithm. And just, like, it's fucking horrifying. Yeah. I, yeah, it's a... It's definitely not the uplifting conversation that we had planned in our last no. chat. Um, no, it is not. But you know, one thing I did find interesting was when Modi was being interviewed by the BBC at some point. It's like an older, older interview. This woman was questioning him about the human rights record, and he just had this like very scary, menacing look at her, and he's like, the British should not preach human rights to us. I mean, it didn't completely silence her, but, like, it took her a minute, right? And that is such a excellent and effective silencing tactic because, really, if you're British at that point and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah look at the history, how... But, like, oh. Oh, my God. I am so glad you brought up this particular segment because it is something I also talk about in my book, which is this happened about 2002, 2003-ish. And I, my first memories of Narendra Modi are from about 1998-1999, so well before he became a person of power, when he was essentially just somebody who showed up in cable news studios to represent the party. And he was a lifelong functionary. And even in that, and at, back then I was one of those college students who was a political junkie and cable news was new then in India. So I used to watch a lot of it. So mm -hmm. 98, 99, 2000, like when I'm a 19, 20 year old, I'm seeing this guy who just comes and I see that he's just continuously deflecting and he is just doing so much theater. Right? Because that was his job. He was the party's guy on cable TV to not lose a debate. He had done nothing else in his life other than that. And then he was made the chief minister of Gujarat. Like he had not even run a tiny town or a company or a village or anything before. He had just been this kind of a guy who goes on cable TV or gives messages or whatever. And he was made the chief minister of Gujarat. And that is kind of like this random promotion that he got and his only skill Literally, the only skill I've seen him have is how to manipulate the media, yeah. how to put Which on like an Trump, act. Right? It's exactly like Trump. And yeah, that's where I was going. I was like, that is the biggest, like, there are a lot of differences between Modi and Trump. But one thing that is common is that their main and arguably only strength is they know exactly how to push the mainstream media's buttons. They know exactly what to say to make the questioner back off most of the time. They know exactly what to say, how to change the narrative. And right. that is the only thing that Narendra Modi has been doing since he became the chief minister of Gujarat and then 12 years later became the prime minister of India. Like that is like, even with what is happening with the whole Canada thing, the, those of us who are not inside that cocoon are baffled. Like, oh, really? Canada is a security threat now? <laughs> but within his yeah. cocoon, people will actually buy it. People will say, oh, my God, let's not go to Canada. It's super dangerous now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's get into that. Let me just read a quick timeline um, from an Indian website. But I imagine that they're telling the truth about the timeline, at least. I think it was the Hindustan Times that I screenshotted this from. But, like, okay, so the first thing that happened was that 
Trudeau publicly alleged involvement in the killing of the Sikh separatist leader Hardeep Singh Nijar. And Nijar was already wanted in India for years. Trudeau said that he had credible allegations of Indian involvement. Then the second thing that happened is that New Delhi rejected the charge, and that's when kind of like tensions escalated. India issued an advisory to Indians living in Canada, urging them to be careful and exercise caution. And then India suspended its visa processing services in Canada, which will also include Canadians living in other countries. India then asked Canada to reduce its diplomatic presence in India. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's the timeline. Like, it is, it is wild how this has escalated. I guess before all this, there was the G20 visit, and there was some comments about how Trudeau's handshake was cold and how he pulled away too quickly, um, how he missed uh, Modi's dinner for leaders. <laughs> Things like that, but um, I think they had already been having this conversation at that time. Yeah, but so I like having grown up in India in those very main, like the Sikh Khalistani years, I feel like this timeline goes back a few decades. Oh, yeah, yeah. this is just the, yeah. the quick. So, yeah, so then what like, happened if you look at the in the last week? timeline, the recent happenings are just completely Modi's creation for domestic politics of his own. Like, it makes no sense from any other angle. So, the history, for those who might not know, is that, you know, Sikhs are a very small percentage, but uh, within the region, an influential percentage in Punjab. They were mostly in India, but they were also a little bit in Pakistan, but they are neither Muslim nor Hindu. They are a different religion of their own. Right. Unfortunately, many of them are targeted as Muslims because they wear a very different looking turban, but, you know, for some people, turban is turban. And after 9-11, they were targeted a lot. Yep. Yeah, true. So, India from its very founding in the 1940s and Pakistan for that matter, like, you know, Sikhs were always just by definition numerically minority and everything, but within the regions they were influential, they were there and they were like, they have, the religion has enough in common just spiritually and historically with both Hindu and Islam that they can get along and they generally like, it's a religion that is more built on kind of service and everything. Like it's not an, it's not a naturally aggressive or a conquering religion. It's more about finding God, etc. Like in that sense, it is, it is not a proselytizing religion at all. So, but what did happen was that in the 70s and 80s, when all this general geopolitical crap was happening. There was an incentive given to these separatists uh, who were Sikhs who said that Punjab should have a Sikh homeland. Right now, now on its face, it's not a very unreasonable request to say that if we, if almost all other religions have a country of their own, maybe we should also have our own country in a place where we are a majority population. There was a twofold problem in that. One thing was that no majority of Sikhs did not want that because. Sikhs already controlled, like, uh, had a lot of power in the Punjab state of India. And, you know, Manmohan Singh, the prime minister before India, and another Sikh had Zail Singh. Like, 
So until about the 70s or 80s, there was no major reason for anybody to really go after the Sikhs. But for a bunch of reasons we won't go into, there were incidents where some people, and again, when you have billions of people, some people will do crazy shit. Some people decided that in line with the whole terrorism movement that was happening all over the world, they will try some terrorism to get independence from the Indian state. And one of those things was they bombed an, an Air India flight in the 1980s that took off from Canada. And that entire plot happened in Canada and the Canadian cops oh. and the Mounties and everybody missed it. So this plane, this 747 was blown up very close to Ireland where they still have a memorial for it in the 1980s by people who wanted a separate Sikh homeland. Right? But these were still like specific people who wanted that. There was, there was not and there is still not a widespread demand for a separate Sikh country within India. Now, this led to a lot of violence in the 80s and 90s and it eventually subsided mainly because unlike Kashmir where there is a much more widespread disagreement, in Punjab there was never a widespread anti-India sentiment. So eventually once a lot of stuff happened, the movement died down. Now, things change after Modi comes to power because now we are in like 2010s, late 2010s, early 2020s and nobody has talked about Khalistan except for these maybe a couple of dozen people who live in Canada because Canada has freedom of speech, right? So, America has freedom of speech. So, if you are one of a few couple of dozen people who still feels that, yes, Sikh nationhood is a thing, nobody's going to stop you because you're not breaking any Canadian laws or American laws. But somehow the Indian government under Modi started insisting, no, you need to censor these people. And now the Canadian response is, how do we censor these people? Right? Like they're not breaking any laws. And sure, Canada did kind of miss a few things in the 80s. But at the same time, there is no widespread anti-India or anti-Hindu or whatever sentiment in Canada either. But then what happens is in 2019, the Indian government decides to pass these farm laws just overnight, which just completely changed the nature of the farming industry. And the way they did it happened to in influence Sikhs the most. So a lot of Sikhs protested against that. And because Punjab is so close to Delhi, they blockaded the capital with their protest. It was just a completely non-violent protest, but the Modi government, instead of just engaging with them, saying, okay, maybe we messed up, they decided to say, oh, this is all those 1980s Khalistanis oh. causing trouble, which was absolutely not happening and which is still not happening. And that is still the shit they are continuing to do, which is there is really no broad-based movement for Sikh separatism, but they are almost trying to make it happen like the Reichstag fire of the 1930s where it would make Modi's politics a lot easier if there were actually a lot of Sikh terrorists that Canada was helping. Whereas in reality, it's just a bunch of these few people who, again, if you have a population of a few hundred million or a billion, there's always going to be some people doing some random stuff. But that doesn't mean you turn it into an entire political movement. But if you right. want to fool your people into thinking that you always have enemies coming in, once you run out of Muslim enemies, who do you go to next? Next you go to Sikhs. Next you go to the Dalits. 
and then you go to the Canadians and the Americans and Australians like Hindutva runs on a continuous supply of enemies right and they also seem to be uh, becoming a global problem clearly it's not just a far right movement in India but it's affecting politics in the UK like I think last year there was riots between Hindus and Muslims after a cricket match in Leicester and there was like effects of that in the local politics and I think in New Jersey there was like some parade that was organized and they had bulldozers show up at that parade which are like a symbol of how Muslim houses are being bulldozed and uh, there's some stuff going on in Australia and obviously in Canada you know, people ignore this at their own peril because it's getting worse and worse around the world. Yep, like, I, it, this, that's why I keep, like, whenever I make this parallel, a bunch of people will obviously say, oh, you're doing the Gordon's Law, or, you know, because, oh, like, of course, the easiest parallel to make is the Nazis or Hitler, right? Or I'm like, there's so much clear, substantive, direct, parallels here in that in every single one of those instances you mentioned, like Australia, UK, the US, and now Canada, in every single instance, there is, like, I don't think there is even a general awareness of who the Indian Prime Minister is, right? right. Like, in, in, in the general public. I don't think people would know, like, maybe... 10-15% in of Americans or Britons or Canadians or Australians will know the name of the Indian Prime Minister or what even India is up to. And yet, they have created this almost serial phenomenon suggesting that there is a global conspiracy in which they have again another plagiarism of their fascism. George Soros, who's like 95 years old by now. Apparently, yeah. George Soros is doing all this. Oh, point. that's a, an Indian conspiracy as well? Oh, yeah. I, oh, you did not know this? Yeah. Like, no, in I Hindi, did not. Yeah, they feel like this is all George Soros. Like, they are not even original enough to find an original villain for this. <laughs> <laughs> they feel everything wow. is happening because of George Soros. <laughs> and see, so you see how, like, everything affects so many groups, right? You think it's just coming after the Muslims, so maybe you won't say anything, but it's not. Eventually, it's coming for other Hindus, it's coming for the Jews, it's uh, coming for Christians, it's coming for women and feminists and trans people, and, you know, like, it's so important to push back and speak up, even when it's targeting a group that doesn't affect you. Like myself, I'm not... Muslim, but I am of Muslim background. I don't practice. I am godless. But I am horrified when I see how Muslims are being dehumanized around the world. Because, you know, when the fascists come for me, they're not going to check if I'm an actual believer or not. It's just, you know, I've got the Muslim in me, and that's bad enough. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, like for me, it is like a Two sides of that coin that point the same way in which that one thing is exactly what you said, which is that eventually they will come for everyone, including me and you, which is a self-preservation instinct. But a 
on the other side is also like <laughs> i know we ended our last conversation as a, on a positive note but like having lived in new york city or having visited toronto or like you know all these cities where we have so many religions so many races and everybody like you walk by on one block and you will see like 10 different colors and 10 different religions yeah. and everybody gets along right like new york is the city that has had literally the biggest islamic conducted terror attack in history and 10% yeah. of the city is muslim there are halal cards on every block there are like muslims everywhere like there is no systematic like i'm sure there are like there are definitely anti muslim bigoted incidents but there is no structural systemic political targeting of muslims in the city where literally 911 happened and i hear people in india citing bombay 2008 as an excuse for why even today we are letting people just break up hindu muslim weddings right like that is just such a bizarre leap that it is like it's the most self destructive thing i've seen in human history like india is so poised to just do so much better if it just lets these things go and goes back to how things were in like let's say 2013 but somehow modi seems to have convinced about 40% of the country that we need to be a hindu nation now <laughs> Right and outside the country too like yeah. apparently uh, a Canadian Hindu nationalist called Ron Banerjee openly called for the genocide of Muslims and Sikhs and said it is awesome what Modi is doing um he said on his YouTube channel I support the killing of Muslims and Sikhs in the Republic of India because they deserve to die yeah. like just that is the cre- like that is one of those things that have been trying to both come to terms with and analyze because you know i'm trying to analyze it from like an academic and research and just a larger sociological marketing economics perspective but the personal level i'm so horrified because i'm like this is not the india i remember like how did things get so bad so fast right and the free speech crowd which is often you know very loud on you know someone gets criticized for saying the n word or something is completely silent on these types of things. They're very loud when it's like a blasphemy case in Pakistan, which is okay, you know, that's something I I like to speak up about too. I think it's very important, but there are so many other free speech horrors in the world, you know? Like apparently academics um are their their conferences if they're studying like Hindutva are, are attacked and In Australia 13 academic fellows resigned from the Australia India Institute at the University of Melbourne citing interference from the Indian High Commission and attempts to censor research and writing that presented an unflattering image of India like this is all stuff that reminds me of Saudi you know what i mean mm-hmm. it is wild and it's not even on the radar of so many free speech warriors mm-hmm. and like at least saudi arabia or china or russia or turkey for that matter don't call themselves the mother of democracy or yes this is what the thing makes this say. particularly galling and bizarre is that what modi and the hindutva crowd is saying that we want to act like saudi arabia and china but we want to be treated like canada yes yes exactly yeah. it's that speaking out of both sides of your mouth and they are succeeding on the 
on a, on a large scale. You know, in in America, a majority of Indian. American Democrats and Republicans express support for Modi. So that's 55% Democrats and 71% Republicans, obviously. But I mean, the Democrat number is horrifying. According to a 2021 survey, these two groups also largely approve of the RSS, an openly Hindu nationalist conservative volunteer organization. <laughs> I mean, so many of my precious hours have been spent arguing with my Indian American friends who voted for Hillary or Biden but who support Modi and they feel that there is no contradiction there like that is what like I mean I I, on an academic level I get what their point is but I'm just like why am I living in this world like where such people exist what is their point their point is like honestly there is no I cannot explain their point in a coherent way, but if I were to analyze it, I would be like, it is a very self-preservation hypocrisy, where in India, I'm a majority, so I will be majoritarian, but in North America, I'm a minority, so I will be a minority. I see. Okay, so that's something, that's a phenomenon that happens in Pakistan, and amongst Pakistani expats, too, so... Yeah. yeah, but like the the thing is that until now there was no clear conflict between the liberal side in the US and the conservative side in India or let's say the liberal side in Canada and the conservative side in India. But it it, it looks like the Hindutva people are picking this fight. I don't think like looking at what Trudeau did for months, it feels like Canada tried to just resolve the situation low key. Because, you know, a lot of powerful countries do a lot of stupid, cruel shit on each other's land. So it almost felt like Canada was saying that, all right, fine, you guys killed somebody for your own reasons. Just tell us it will not happen again. Just get rid of this and let's just move past it. And it almost seems like India was not even ready to do that. Like, at least, or Modi was not even ready to do that. Modi's thing is he wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to be like, this is a completely made-up charge, but also, let's say we killed him. Why shouldn't we have killed him if America killed Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad? Like, that is the cable news level discourse that the next year's election is going to be fought. Are they really comparing that? Yeah, big time. Oh, in Washington Post, like Barkhadat, like Barkhadat is actually not even a very right-wing or, like, reporter. But if you read her latest article in Washington Post about Justin Trudeau, she is taking a very hard-line position in saying that this is all Trudeau's fault and India, and then she's like... Canada never had a problem if America killed this person or America killed that person. And like, yeah, everybody agrees. America kills a lot of people. But is that what you are saying you are? Like, you need to pick a name. You, like, America did not deny that they went into Abbottabad and killed Bin Laden. On the one hand, you're saying we did not do anything. And on the other hand, you're like, even if we did, why shouldn't we? Right? Like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. But Bin Laden was responsible for killing so many people. And also this guy. As far as we know, nothing. was not. Nothing, yeah. Like, they're just... Another thing they have done is that even questioning anything about the Indian state or expressing separatism automatically makes you terrorist, right? Yeah, you know... That is so bizarre. It's it's so scary. Like, we had this conversation scheduled before this news was out, but, like, it freaked me out a little bit. Like, 
you know, that India can have Canadian citizens just murdered on Canadian soil for being critical of the state. And it's just, it's scary as fuck. Like, I'm pseudonymous, at least, but you um, are not. (laughs) Yeah, but in my case, like, I've, I've said this on Twitter before in other podcasts, which is like... That ship for me has sailed along back, so everybody knows my name, everybody knows where I work, and if anybody, like, you know, my office is pretty much public knowledge, so. And they target your your workplace all the time, right? The Hindutva trolls online, like, they contact your... Oh, yeah, big, big time. I've been left, like, nasty voicemails threatening me with stuff, and then, like, uh, like my university Twitter accounts will get targeted so much that they've pretty much been like oh this is just some related traffic like in a in a bizarre way the trolls have kind of almost <laughs> made themselves irrelevant for my university in that my university is like oh okay this is just the same thing like and again i'll give my full credit to my university leadership stevens institute of technology that even at the worst times when they did not know this like a lot of these leadership were not South Asian or did not know what was happening, but they got the basic point that I'm expressing my opinion as a private citizen and, you know, that is it. Like, there is nothing more because people would be sending stuff like, oh, we will tell Indian Indian students to boycott your university. Kind of like what they are doing with the Canadian thing. So, yeah, that happens a lot, but that is what they can do, right? Like, if we start getting worried by that then they win like that is like the whole point of fascism is just widespread high school bully (laughs) right um as a pakistani canadian i'm like never getting to india am i (laughs) (laughs) um like you know it is my ancestral uh homeland but i've never been and uh, I always, you know, have wanted to go. And um, before when we were kids, we only had a Pakistani passport. So obviously never thought we were going on that. Um, but even looks like <laughs> with a Canadian passport, I'm not, I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like these days... I guess you're both missing something and but also not missing much in the sense that things have just gotten so tense. Like I, I heard this like it's a random tangent, but I heard this from a friend in Florida that like since DeSantis went on his DeSantis thing, like Florida is just not as pleasant or nice as it used to be. Everybody's just on edge, like what side are you on? And mm-hmm. India the last few visits, like until a few years ago I used to tell people, Yes, you should totally visit India, you'll love it, but I feel that we are in a stage where if you cannot visit India for a few years, you are not missing out on much. (laughs) Like, Mm. this might not be a time when you want to be in India too much. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, like, we are literally lynching people over random stuff, and nobody is facing any consequences for that. One thing I contrast with a lot of my liberal friends is that over a thousand people for January 9th, including Donald Trump himself, have been persecuted. Have been prosecuted. For yeah. Like, sorry. For January. Yeah, 6th? Jan 6th. Like, 
we have so many people that the American state or the American system has held accountable for what they did. Whereas in India for the last nine years, if you wear the color saffron and if you call yourself Hindu, you can get away with murder quite literally. You can get away with gang rape. You can get away with yes. murderous gang rape as there was that story you might have known where... On the bus? This, no, the 11 people in 2002 during the Gujarat riots gang raped a pregnant woman and murdered her baby by bashing oh her God. on the floor and her family members and they were convicted in finally after a few years and they were in jail and earlier this year the Modi government released them on humanitarian grounds wow even though they never expect uh, expressed any repentance Right? Like, generally the standard if you're pardoning somebody is that the person has to ex express repentance for what they have Right, done. yeah. These guys were like, no, we were completely innocent. So, these are guys who were overwhelmingly found to have done this, who killed a baby, who gang raped a pregnant woman, who killed a bunch of other people. <laughs> they were not only released, they were garlanded, they were welcomed to BJP party meetings. And one of the reasons offered was all, many of these men were Brahmin. Like, that is literally the official reason given for That's why, releasing yeah. them that, oh, these are Brahmin men who have been showing good behavior, quote-unquote. Wow. Like, they didn't cause any riots in jail, so they should be forgiven. So, when you build a system like that, what is the message you are sending to the psychopaths of the next generation? <laughs> yeah, that they're free to do as long, what they want. And as long the cops as they, will help them, the government will help them. <laughs> If you're a violent person, if you're somebody who has any tendency to hurt people, which we have, like we just by as a species have a small majority of, they are being sent a message that as long as you wear the color saffron and say you like Modi and BJP, you can get away with anything, not just murder. Yeah, it's kind of like how Trump refused to, what did he say when he was asked to condemn the Proud Boys? Yeah, good people on both sides. No, no, no. So there was the good people on both sides thing. But let me just look this up because, yeah, I think he said, like, um, stand by. Oh, yeah. Stand by. Yeah. That clear signal. Yeah. And then before he was elected, he was asked to condemn the KKK. And he was like, I don't I don't know who they are or something like he wouldn't he wouldn't denounce them. The KKK. Yeah. yeah. So. Like, yeah, what are the main takeaways from this conversation that um, fascism spreads if left unchecked? It has many ways of marketing itself. Um, it becomes a global problem, and it builds connections with other fascists. Like, I think there was a Op India-like lady journalist which is a right-wing publication, correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, who was having a friendly chat with Tommy Robinson, who's a British far-right activist. Mm -hmm. And, like, these are the connections they're building, and their common enemy currently is Muslims, but they also attack, you know, historically oppressed castes, um, Dalits, and... Uh, Sikhs and uh, yeah, it's just gonna grow. 
Yeah, and by the way, Op India was uh, financed and partially founded by the in-laws of Rishi Sunak. Really? Yep. <laughs> yeah. So they are like the because they are also themselves high caste BJP Modi supporting right wingers, and they are also tech billionaires of the Indian variety. So Rishi Sunak's wife is the daughter of the couple that has boosted a lot of these right wing. media outlets that did not exist until about 10 years ago by the way like indian media until about 10 years ago i used to make fun of some american media saying oh our cable news show doesn't have any bill o'reilly's or hanities and now today india's cable news is all hanities like not oh even bill o'reilly's <laughs> like literally every oh single gosh. one is a hanity that's depressing beyond belief But okay, before before you go, maybe you can give us a quick little rundown of marketing tactics that they use. Oh yes, so a couple of marketing tactics that are used is to appeal to our most baser instincts, which is that almost come to us from days when we were de- dwelling in caves. So anything that threatens our women, right? Like if we are told that there is some unknown entity threatening our women. the women and children thing yeah yeah the women and children thing so this was done in jim crow south this was done in nazi germany this is being done also in today's india with love jihad right the other thing is the the child abuse or the child kidnapping thing so that is another thing that is very common so with the anti democrat and all the fake news movement in the us there's this whole idea that there's a random secret pedophile ring that the democrats are running yeah same thing in uh, india that a lot of muslims will just be attacked for oh this person is kidnapping kids like there is no evidence whatsoever right so that is the second marketing message the third one is just constant repetition and that is because mm. of the mere exposure bias and the anchoring bias and that's what a lot of advertisers use so the reason mcdonald's or pizza hut or kfc keep showing you ads every single day is they just want to stay at the top of your mind so the next time you want to eat something you will eat kfc or you will eat mcdonald's a lot of right wing fascist movements do exactly this where they will manufacture stories to stay in your attention right just so you will keep it that message will keep getting reinforced whereas the opposite happens with liberal politicians where like many times it will be like oh there is no story coming out of the biden administration there is no story coming out of like there is nobody corrupt in the obama administration like, like what are you going to like eventually people have to create content political news has to create content so the right wingers know that there is a, an appetite for content and if you give something that is even mildly interesting or conflict filled yeah that create content so they will make up things like remember there was this thing of like sharia law in north america yes. nobody was ever proposing sharia law yes it's such interesting content content to make if public is if the public is worried about muslim right? yeah Yeah, that that happened in the UK too, where they had like these. Uh, I guess they were saying there were no go zones, which weren't safe for Westerners, Muslim majority areas, and they were r- running them like by Sharia law. And I guess they pointed to like you know uh, public signs that are just like you know don't drink alcohol in public, but they attributed those signs to Islamization rather than just general. rules in the country yep 
and and once we reach that level of kind of fear psychosis all reason goes out of the window and a great example i give is how much we are generally scared of bear attacks right like it is true theoretically that if you come up against a bear you will probably not stand a great chance but data show less than 700 people in the last 200 years or something have been attacked or killed by a bear like bears just generally avoid human beings you are something like a million times more likely to be eaten by a human being than by a bear What? Yeah, <laughs> there's way more instances of cannibalism than there are of bears eating humans. Okay. Looking at data, but we are so anchored, and that is the anchoring effect that marketers use for selling their products and politicians use for selling their fascism. Just if you just anchor things into people's irrational fears, they will just keep. holding on to those fears so no matter how much i tell you that you know you are much more likely to literally get struck by lightning than be attacked by a bear if you see a bear you will forget that because that is just not we are just not a completely rational species and the larger message is that we have to keep this in mind that fascism is the default state we have to continuously keep fighting it yeah you can never take democracy or equality for granted yeah on that note um well thank you so much for that uh wonderfully depressing conversation <laughs> <laughs> thank you for letting me unload it <laughs> well maybe next time gorov maybe next time we'll have a very positive and uplifting conversation about india and talk about how modi lost Yes hopefully and that is like that is one thing that I'm very like seriously strongly actively hoping to influence as much as I can again I'm I'm not an indian citizen so there's a limit to how much I can uh, do but Oh you gave it oh I guess with the US uh citizenship you can only have one right No, with the Indian citizenship. Oh, with the But Indian US citizenship. US is okay with dual citizenship. Oh, okay. Let you have multiple so yeah. So yeah like technically that is one more thing that I face that I could like if they want they could just cancel my visa because I'm technically not a citizen anymore so they could just be like don't come here oh, that's wow. what they've done with a bunch of Canadians they just canceled their visas and yeah like ersatz green cards that, that India used to offer people so but oh well you know we'll keep fighting the good fight <laughs> Don't let them get to you and uh be safe. Yep, absolutely. Always taking care and I like this was again an amazing conversation as always with you and uh, thank you for letting me ramble so much. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> It's always fun to hear what you have to say. Thank you for listening to this mini series on the global far right. And thank you for supporting the show. It's because of listeners like you that I can continue to produce specialized content like this. Do get in touch if you think you or someone you know would be a good guest for the series. nicemangoes.blog@gmail.com. No Ian Mangoes. There are still a lot of countries I'm looking to cover. 